This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show. I'm Chandro Tar. Sandy Clough is on my left. The great Danny Bailey is in the booth. Our executive producer. Not just a producer, an executive producer. That's a very, very different thing. Do, do you have an executive title? No. no, I don't believe so. No. Oh, my gosh. Who would don't. ever give me an executive title? That's a terrible idea. Caller text line is 303-831-1340. We'll start with the Denver Nuggets, and we will uh, talk a lot about the Nuggets today because, of course, uh, Ryan Blackburn will join us from Mile High Sports, host of the Pickaxe and Roll podcast, in just about an hour. But the Nuggets last night did get their full complement of starters, although that didn't last very long. More on that in a moment. But Milwaukee started out in a better spot. They started out, uh, you know, with an 8-0 lead right out the gate. The Nuggets kind of made it a game, but in the second and third quarters, they were outscored <laughs> to 63-40. And that's more or less all she wrote as the Bucks cruise 112-95. to Sandy, the Nuggets really, they looked a little flat to start. The Bucks, who wanted, to, I think, wanted a little revenge when they were beaten rather soundly in Doc Rivers' debut in Denver, looked up for the game. And then the injuries to Murray and Contavious Caldwell-Pope uh, pretty much just put the Nuggets in a hole. And, and quite frankly, give Michael Malone credit. He emptied the bench. They played 14 players uh, last yeah. night. You know, yeah. Nicole Jokic did get 32 minutes, Porter Jr. 31 minutes. But virtually the entire bench got some some run. Yeah, as I think Malone realized, okay, just not our night. But let's just go ahead and get out of here as healthy as possible. Well, that's the concern, isn't it? Uh, coming out of this game is uh, Murray shin splints and Caldo Pope's hamstring. Which, by the way, the official terms for that uh, bilateral tibia inflammation for shin splints, right? And right hamstring tendinosis. Uh, Sore, sore hammy <laughs> for KCP. Yes. Now, I believe he had both, and I may be wrong on this, both an illness and the hamstring issue last week. Right. Back, and I think they're going to be very cautious. Hamstrings can linger. Uh, shin splints can linger. Yeah, they if really can. not properly rested. And I'm guessing at this i don't know for sure but we all know the history of jamal murray from the time he was growing up in ontario mm -hmm. was being put through a very demanding physical regimen first by his father and i think as the years went on by murray himself and a lot of that work took place in a basketball court or at least a very hard surface yeah, not the kind of conditioning that necessarily resembles Jokic's regimen or Nathan McKinnon's regimen, mm -hmm. for that matter. And it concerns me that Murray works out too much on hard surfaces like a basketball court and the shin splints inevitably come about as a result of that. 
and I am wondering if his exercise regimen, his conditioning regimen, needs to be altered a bit. Uh, he missed an entire month mm-hmm. earlier in the season, and I think missing that month cost him a spot in the All Star. I agree. I think he, I think he makes it. I, I think he might make it otherwise. And probably even a little bit on reputation after right. the playoffs. I think he would have made the all-star game. But my concern is that there are times, and again, I'm guessing at this, there are times he plays when he probably has some soreness and could use the night off. And he's so dedicated. I mean this as nothing but a compliment, but I think sometimes an organization has to step in and protect a player from himself. Yes. And and say, all right, we need a different kind of exercise regimen. We know you're a workout warrior. And that that's what it made it all the more absurd. And I wonder if this still doesn't play a role, too. From two years ago, when the president of the team came on local radio prior to the playoffs. And Tim Connolly. Coming off an ACL injury and declared that Murray was fit to play, had been cleared to play by the doctors, and it was simply up to Murray whether to play or not. Well, I, I to this day, can't explain why Tim Connolly would have said that, especially to and or about a player who is known to stretch the limits. He's a gamer. You, you know, know Jamal Murray's a gamer. He <laughs> wanted to play, and... With advice coming in along the way during his period of recovery from Clay Thompson to Nikola Jokic, Aaron Gordon, he was told, don't come back one minute before you feel absolutely ready to come back. That was the advice he got from teammates, from opposing players around the league who had gone through similar injuries starting with Clay Thompson on the night he sustained the injury, mm-hmm. who came into the locker room and told Murray, don't let them force you to come back too soon. You determine when you're ready. Well, Murray's inclination is to push the limits and come back too soon. And then you have a president of the organization saying you're cleared to play. Right. And made him look to fans like someone who didn't want to play in a year when the Nuggets didn't seem to be serious champions. Which is, uh, to a guy like Jamal Murray and his personality, uh, all but insulting. And and essentially put pressure on Murray to come play faster because he doesn't want to have that reputation. And he doesn't have that reputation. Murray's played in 40 games this season of the Nuggets 54. After the game, in the uh, post-game press conference, Michael Malone had an opportunity to address both Murray and Caldwell Pope's injury status. You know, KCP, the hamstring was feeling pretty good, passed all the tests, but those soft tissue injuries, always uh, they're always hard. And I just, he went out there and played, and as I was putting him back in the game, I said, how do you feel? And he looked at me with a little bit of hesitation, and I said, that's when I told him, I said, listen, go, go sit down. Uh, Jamal came to me during the first half saying that, you know what, my, I'm not feeling great. And uh, I said, let me get you out. He goes, let me finish the half and see how I feel. And I just at the halftime, I shut him down. There's no no need. Yes, we want to win games, but, you know, Jamal and KCP are integral to our success. So we're trying to have a big picture with that. So we'll see how they feel when we get home. And that is, at least from a couple of years ago, from the time you're talking about, 
Also a different Michael Malone approach, but one that is obviously going to be more beneficial for the players. But I, I, I see you cringing. I know what you're well, thinking. Well, what Maybe I'm thinking. Maybe you shouldn't have let him take it to halftime as soon as he said he well, didn't no, feel good. No, no, no. I, I, I actually don't. I, what, I, what I will say is this. All throughout the 21-22 season, Michael Malone, particularly with respect to Jamal Murray, not so much Michael Porter Jr. I mean, it, that decision made itself. Right. There's no way he could go. All through the season, Michael Malone was saying something to the effect of he's not coming back before he's ready. We look at some of these pieces of speculation on his coming back. That year, there were serious reporters who had him coming back in February. Right. February. Which was ludicrous. Always. Which was ridiculous. Always We ludicrous. both said so. We yes. were doing a show at the time. Always. Together. Ludicrous. And Malone stuck by Murray on that. He said, Jamal and I laugh when we see things like that. We look at things together and we laugh. But once Connolly said what Connolly said right before the playoffs, Malone changed course. And I don't know if he was backing Connolly or whether he had a change of heart, but Murray said once the playoffs were over, he said that if they wanted me to play on offense only, I, I could have given it a shot, but I had no lateral movement. I couldn't play defense. And for for a defensive-minded coach to have changed right there at the end, now I think particularly since they won the championship, he's not going to sweat these injuries. Right. He's not going to say anything to suggest that players ought to come back. This is long, it's, it's it, long we'll game We'll see. Stuff. We'll play it by ear. If he has to miss a week, I'm talking about Murray right. um, in particular, but even with Caldwell Pope, he has to miss a week, he misses a week. Has to be two weeks, two weeks. Has to be a month. I don't think it necessarily would be, but it was a month in November. Right. And we knew because of the hints they were giving us when Murray got hurt at the beginning of the year that he'd missed the month of October. I'm sorry, the latter part of October and all of November. And we were right, basically. Yeah. Right? And so I think the attitude, within, and it helps have a former player as a GM, too. Calvin Booth uh, it does. knows about these kinds of help. injuries. He may have had a hamstring problem himself. I would imagine he, may he have probably had did. splints himself somewhere along the way. So you're not going to get from a former player sitting in the front office any pressure being placed on the coach or on the player to come back quickly. I'm looking at the Nuggets' schedule over the next 12 or 13 games. By the way, take the next 12 games. Mm -hmm. Six will be nationally televised, and actually there's a stretch between February 25th and March 13th in which they play nine games and and six games are nationally televised. Televised. Next three aren't, but after that, six out of nine are nationally televised. I don't know. I. It's going to be hard to win most of those games if Murray and or Caldwell Pope can't play. But I'm looking at it. At, at, let's take these national TV games. 
at Golden State on the 25th on ESPN. I I, I think they could beat Golden State. Without? Without one, Murray. Without one of them, I would think. Yes. Without Murray or without Caldwell. Pope. Probably, Okay. yes. Uh, 29th, they play Miami here. I think they win that game without both of them. All right. March 2nd at the Lakers. They have the Lakers number. That's an ABC game. I think they can win that one uh, without Caldwell Pope. They won maybe their best game of the year last Thursday night without Caldwell Pope. He he missed that game. Murray was great. Uh, They play Phoenix here on the 5th. I think they can win home games certainly without Caldwell Pope and maybe even without Murray, too. Uh, Boston at home on the March 7th, yeah, they need them both. <laughs> they probably need them both to beat Boston. And Boston will be stinging from the loss that Denver put on them in Boston a few weeks ago. And then they're at Miami on the 13th. That's an ESPN game. And, again, I think they can beat the Miami Heat, who are essentially right now a 500 team, without either one of them. So if, if they had to rest them, for, and I'm talking about the next month, Right. Okay. If they had a resume, they could. If it's a week or two, for most of those games, he'd be available, nationally televised or not. If it's a week or two, that we're, we're talking about sometime next week between the 20th and the 23rd, let's say. The, the, the first national TV game is the 25th. I would hope that both could be back by then. Uh, I mean, that's 12 days from now. The, yeah, and then the concern is, obviously, you don't want to fall out of that top four, but right now there's a four-game gap between the Nuggets and the New Orleans Pelicans. Exactly. Who are fifth. Four-game gap. There's a huge drop-off. Okay. And you're in four right Miami, now. So you could drop a couple and not really, you're, you go from fourth to fourth. And, the, what, the again, the standings speak for themselves. They're so close. 37-16, and 16, Minnesota. 36-17, and 17, yeah. Oklahoma City. 35-17, and 17, Clippers who lost again at home last night to Minnesota, 36-18 and 18 Denver. On the road win, home loss differential, Minnesota plus 13, Denver plus 11, Clippers plus 9, Oklahoma City plus 9, New Orleans plus 7, Sacramento plus 6, Phoenix plus 4, and everybody else is somewhere between plus 2 and minus and 15 in the West. This, this you sort of nothing this to worry about. You're you not dropping on any that home lower road. Than when you talk about the, the home away difference that you that you put together that you regularly put on the show, when teams are really close, I love that as a way to separate it because the way you listed it, Minnesota, Denver, Clippers, Thunder, out of the, the four teams separated yeah. by a game and a half, to me, when I look at it in the regular season, that's exactly how I'd rank them. That's how I'd rank them too. Now, Minnesota, I watched Minnesota last night. It was on NBA TV, and Minnesota was great at the Clippers. I mean, they won by 21 points. Yeah. They, they they dominated. Minnesota has been the best team in the West since the get go. And, and 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 they're good. And I mean, Minnesota by all rights should be running away. Think of all those games where they've blown huge leads. Right. Sometimes to bad teams too, and lost games. But they consistently. The reason they're in first place, they consistently win against the best teams. And the Nuggets are doing fine against the best teams in the league. 16 and 15 against plus teams, against teams at zero or minus. They're 20 and three. The three, the three losses to the Houston Houston Rockets. Rockets. Otherwise, they're beating every bad team. That's why I say 
the only bad losses on their schedule, and they played 54 games, almost two-thirds of the season, right? Right. The only bad losses at home to Houston, you shouldn't lose to Houston at home. Losing them down there early in the season, Houston was great at home early in the season. Mm-hmm. Not so great now. Though they did beat the Knicks. They're still 19-9. and nine. It's not right. bad at all. They're, yeah. they're a good home team. The other bad losses, Orlando, mm-hmm. not because Orlando isn't good. Orlando's one of the best teams in the league. But because Orlando had half its team missing right. when they came in here, and the Nuggets had just come back the night before from 18 down in San Francisco to win. They got an 18-point lead themselves in the third quarter and blew the game just because they got lazy and sloppy for about a quarter and a half. Those are the only two games they've lost all year that are bad losses. Losing to Milwaukee in Milwaukee is not a bad loss. Losing to Philadelphia with Embiid in Philadelphia is not a bad loss. It's your program, too, and we want to remind you again, call or text line 303-831-1340. Danny Bailey's monitoring that. Danny said there's a text of interest. All right. Broncos 60 says, Nuggets got lazy after they won the championship. Oh, see, I don't agree with that. I I disagree disagree. as well. I I think you're talking about the the normal level of fatigue that you see with teams that that are that play all the way through the playoffs, and I I I totally disagree with that. Are the, the Miami Heat being lazy by getting into the finals and missing it? They're twenty eight and twenty five, but they've been lazy. They, they're a five hundred team. They play twenty eight at home yeah, and twenty five on the road. I don't think so. The record is exactly uh, as it should be for a mediocre the Nuggets are a team. Game and a half out of first place with their second best player missing a month that we just talked about here. There are two teams in the league, two teams who have had better years than Denver. They beat Boston and lost to Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's two games out of 54, and they're and one and one. They're one and one. Now, you know, one and three against Oklahoma City, but two and one against the Clippers. Two and one against New Orleans. Lost the only game they played against Cleveland at Cleveland. They're six and seven against, let's see, the other six teams in the league, other than themselves, who are the best teams in the league. Minnesota, Boston, Oklahoma City, Clippers, Cleveland, New Orleans. Those are the six best teams in the league other than Denver, right? So, they're six and seven against those teams. Yeah, I would firmly okay. <laughs> push back on the notion. And I think they'd beat any of them, including Boston, with or without home court in a seven-game series. Yeah, I Because I, they I do won't not be missing guys. They will rest guys in the regular season. They will sacrifice games in order to rest guys or not play people with what appear to be relatively minor injuries. They will sacrifice that. They will probably not win more than 55 games this year if they win as many as 55. You know who else is doing the same same thing? Sacrificing games when their players just don't feel right. They're playing the long game. It's the Phoenix Suns who spent an inordinate amount of yeah. money and made trades right. to get assemble their star team. That team is four and a half games behind the Denver Nuggets. <laughs> and their plan is exactly the same. In fact, they may even be a little more aggressive on making sure I their players so, sit. Because they only have three that are really, really good 
the Nuggets have more than three guys who stand out. They have at least four and a starting lineup that is better than Phoenix's starting lineup. Phoenix has Beal, Booker, and Durant, and none of them will play more than 70 games this year, I promise you. Oh, and that's that's purely an effort to make sure that they're somehow healthy all at the same time. Now, I think the Nuggets are fine. I think the primary concern here is health. As you pointed out, Sandy, with the schedule breaking down, there's space for Murray, for KCP to get right. Uh, you're talking about improvements. We've seen Reggie Jackson step up if he has to. Christian Brown can step up. This is an opportunity for Peyton Watson, maybe yeah. Julian Strother. Uh, these guys need minutes, and they need some reps, too. And so, you know what? If you're investing in the long game, which the Denver Nuggets are, you don't want anybody to get hurt. But injuries do happen. And in this particular case, the Nuggets not only have the time, but the personnel to let these two guys in particular get right. They play tomorrow against the Sacramento Kings. That'll be here. Here, here in Denver. We'll break some of that down with Brian Blackburn at the top of the hour, but we'll head now to Washington where the Avalanche will try to break their four-game losing streak against Alexander Ovechkin, the grade eight, and the Caps. We'll break it down next to Miley Sports. He said, tell me all your thoughts on God. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. The Colorado Avalanche have lost all four of their games on their current road trip. One of them in overtime to New York to kick off the road trip. But after that, regulation losses to New Jersey, Carolina, and then getting shut up by the Florida Panthers. Tonight, they'll try to turn it around against the Washington Capitals team that looks like a reasonably soft landing spot. We'll get this out of the way first. Nathan McKinnon uh, at least was out at morning skate when we talked to Arif Dean yesterday. He said he expected McKinnon to skate in part because of the way they practiced and they didn't uh, alter lines. You just kind of moved Curtis McDermott up to practice, which gives every indication that McKinnon, despite taking that nasty spill on his chin against Florida, is likely to play tonight. So that's good news for the abs. But following the loss to Florida, 4-0, Jared Bednar had an opportunity to talk about what he thought was ailing his team. And I want you to pay a little bit of attention here to the specificity of some of the things that he mentions. We, you know, broke that down that game in depth because it was just not very good in a lot of different aspects. But the number one thing being the detail in our game and then getting specific on that. And the biggest thing that I took out of that game is we were just in support team as we were just in poor support of the puck all over the ice which left us isolated when we had the puck it left us isolated when we were defending and um, you know we just really didn't give ourselves a great chance to win because the, the detail in our game was just lacking and um, when you really kind of break that down, the support of the puck in all three zones, the way we want to play with speed and support and communication, it was um, it was nowhere near where we needed to be. So um, when we looked at that as a team, I think it became real clear. We showed some stuff of when we're doing it really well and what can happen and then showing some things 
that happened the other night when we're not in the right positions and talking and communicating and working as a connected group. And so it should be pretty clear to us, you know, like that's going to be the number one thing. That detail in our game has to be there and then we're going to have to be highly competitive. Uh, I mean, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Because Jared Bednar, <laughs> in his very uh, sort of sugar-coated way, literally just sort of picked on everything you do on the ice. Communication is poor. Uh, the execution is, is lacking because the team is not focused. Uh, all of this speaks to, oddly, the callback a few weeks ago when Katie Goss had the temerity to follow up with Devon Taves when Taves had been frustrated after a loss and Taves specifically said that there were players that were thinking they were playing their best that were not playing their best. That has appeared to be prophetic, even though the Avs are only two points out of first in the central behind the Dallas Stars. And they did go 13-4-1 after Taves said that over a course of 18 games. But is this one of those things that's a challenge with this roster that for whatever reason... They sort of have an ebb and flow. They, they get a little comfortable, and then they get a little lackadaisical. And it seems like Bednar is pointing out to that exact problem and why they've gotten bit on this road trip. He is trying to mix things up. Uh, I mean, I saw the projected lineups this morning for tonight. Druen is back on the top line. Lekkonen's back down on the third line. You've got Colton together with Wood and O'Connor again, and that was a line that up until the last game or two that they played together was really going well and providing plenty of that support. Now, the whole business about supporting the puck and getting caught isolated with the puck and in defensive situations without the puck, that's pretty fundamental stuff. And... They're not a, a particularly worn down or tired team. At least they shouldn't, shouldn't be at this be. point. Right. I mean, yes, you're missing Nishushkin, but more everybody else is healthy who's supposed to be healthy and has been playing regularly all year long. So, I, you know, I could see if they were missing, in addition to Nishushkin, one or two other regulars. I, I could see that some of the changes – um that would be necessitated by additional injuries would would result in some of those issues developing and being harder to correct. This this is four games now. Now, Monday, Tuesday, last week was back-to-back. But then they didn't play again until Thursday. And then they didn't play again until Saturday. And now they have an extra day beyond the every-other-day customary schedule they, they have two days between games, and they play tonight against a team that, at least on present form, is not going nearly as well as Rangers, Devils, Carolina, Florida. Right, right. <laughs> that of the five games, this will be the fifth tonight on the six-game road trip, probably the two teams, well, one team that's struggling is Washington. Mm-hmm. Tampa's hot. The other four played reasonably well. New Jersey's not playing great, but they vaulted into fourth place and maybe the toughest division in the NHL right now. The most balanced division in the NHL right now is probably the Metro back east. Washington's not bad at home. 13-8-5. It's not remarkable, but it's not bad. Still 13 wins, 13 losses. Right. And you see, tonight, there's no excuse. You can't talk about fatigue tonight. 
You can't talk about being that's, that's worn true. down tonight. It, 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 even your goaltenders had an extra day, and he played okay on Saturday. He was the one guy who played all right. That none of the yeah, other, even none of the skaters in a four-zero loss, that you couldn't have pinned that on Georg. No, he faced forty-three shots. Yeah, I mean that that's that's the the defense has to step up. You know the the exhaustion. I get it, and and this is just a team you need to beat. Period. You need the win. You need to be the hungrier team. You're the better team, even without Nachushkin. And the the Avs have to find a way to get this done. McKinnon will reportedly be back th- again. For Avs fans who look at this situation and think, well, what's the concern here? You know, there's, there's a little bit of panic. There's nothing to panic about. They're two games out of first. They are, as, as Sandy correctly pointed out, they're missing one player of significance right. that they would normally have. That's one. Go, you can go ahead and go to every other NHL city, and they're telling you that they're missing that or more. The Avs are actually healthier than average right now. And so they have to find a way to get this squared. And the, the, the funny one, we had the texter talk about the Nuggets in the last segment, suggesting that maybe the Nuggets, after winning their title, have become a little lazy. And I think all three of us, Yumi and Danny, immediately pushed back at that. Yeah, but because I, the Nuggets are one of the three best teams in the NBA. The Avalanche... I think at times, though, you could make that argument about the Avalanche... Yes, I agree. ...that at times they've sleptwalked or kind of cruised through games in which they shouldn't have. The Avalanche should be a top-five team. Yes. They are not, at the present time, as a matter of fact, well, no, a top you've just five lost team. Four games. They there are six teams in the NHL, Dallas and Winnipeg in their own division, Vancouver in the Pacific, New York in the Metro, and Boston and Florida in the Atlantic with better point percentages than the Avalanche have at the moment. The Avalanche are number seven. If you told me the Avalanche, all things considered, are the seventh best team in the league? I'd say that's about right. If you told me they were fourth best team in the league, I'd say no. There's no way, or a top five team, no way. If you told me that they were outside the top ten, I'd say you're panicking. They're 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 fine, but this is an interesting stretch because they have to look at what they will do with the trade deadline coming up on the eighth of March. And I get it. They are somewhat limited. They already have made an addition when you talk about Zach Parise. Parise, as you pointed out, likely to be on that third line with Johansson and Lekkonen. After the, uh, pardon me, on uh, morning skate uh, today, as a matter of fact, my apologies, morning skate today, Jared Bednar had an opportunity to talk about at least Parise's addition and how it's affected the Avs. Yeah, he's a pretty good. Yeah, another guy, I think, just like a veteran guy that understands the game, plays the right way for 200 feet. He's chipped in a little bit offensively. He's doing a nice job on the defensive side of things. Obviously took care of himself really well like and was was prepping to get ready to play. So physically, he's... He's there, and, and like that experience, it's hard to teach that. And he's a, he's a highly competitive guy too. So, um, you know, he's a nice addition to our team, especially when we're like losing some forwards here and there, and we kind of lack a little bit of the forward depth. Like adding a guy like him that can chip in in a bunch of different areas is nice. No, I agree completely with that. He is not a Parise at 39 years old, especially. He's not a panacea. He's oh, not going to solve no, what, no. what ails he's the He's a third liner. He's ideally. a third liner who, under, as, ben, as Ben are indicated, okay, a guy has to sit for a game or two. I can move Prezi up at the second line for a game or two. I don't have to worry about it. He knows what he's doing. 
we, we can make those moves. He, he basically did say, look, he's a very valuable at this point in his career depth winger. And that's true. And I, I think there is enough there, even though we can, we can, and I'm certain we will continue to talk about the challenges with the abs with getting secondary scoring off of anything, but the top line of McKinnon and Ranton. But I think it's just come to crystallize that over the next couple of weeks, and maybe sooner than that, the Avalanche need to move to get a backup goaltender. Yes, I get it. You'd like another center. Yes, Ryan Johansson hasn't worked out exactly as well as you'd want it. I understand all of that. But the, the gaping hole in the Avalanche's roster is backup goaltender, one that Jared Bednar can actually trust. Because now we've seen he doesn't trust Prosvitov. We've seen now, even with some starts with Ananen, who's been okay, Jared Bednar clearly doesn't trust. If he trusts him more than Prosvitov, it's only incrementally, which means that Georgiev is going to be getting major minutes in net for the rest of the season. He already leads the league in minutes in net. You have to get him a break. One of the truisms in hockey, and you can have that tremendous offense up and down. You can be McKinnon and Rantanen. You can be McKinnon and Ranton and Landeskog and McCarr when they won. You can be McDavid and Dreisaitl. You can go back to be Lemieux and Yager, Gretzky, Curry, Messier, whatever you want. The axiom in hockey has always been the same. If you have a good team, not necessarily a great team, if you have a good team with a goaltender that plays great, you can win the Stanley Cup. And we've seen it over and over again. This isn't the NBA. We have seen eight seeds win the cup, not once, but multiple times. Eight seeds have won the cup. A couple of years ago, an eight seed got there and lost. It is oftentimes, it is not all, it is not the same as, say, a quarterback in the NFL. But when it comes to Stanley Cup playoff time, having the hot goalie is critical to success. And the and best having bad goaltending guarantees goalie, yeah. failure. At, right, bad goaltending, goaltend, you don't win the cup. And a tired goaltender is closer to a bad goaltender than a great one, yeah. no matter how good they actually are. Yeah. Ty, you know, what? what is it that they said? Fatigue makes, makes cowards, cowards of, of us all. Vince and, and that's exactly what can happen across sport. So the, the Avs have to. Chris McFarland has to take a look at the trade market. And well, I think if he's going to make a move, I don't think you can wait till the 8th. I think he's got to start looking right now to see what he gets. I, my guess is that he is. I would think so. And my guess is, and I'm, I'm reading everything I can read on available goaltenders because there seem to be a few. Flurry would be the most desirable. My problem with that is Flurry has a lot of control over where he goes. Mm-hmm. And if Flurry goes somewhere, he'll want to be the starting goaltender. That, that's just that's the leverage he has. And if he's gonna be, otherwise he won't go. You think you think otherwise it is, it is age and everything? Go. He'll he otherwise he won't go. I'm telling you, he feels he's playing and he well probably enough believes he's, to be a number true. one goaltender. Probably true. However, You're, in okay. Montreal with Jake Allen, that first of all they're carrying three goaltenders. That's, that's that's ridiculous. Yep, hard to do. So they're obviously going to trade one of these guys. They just recently signed their backup. To a multi-year contract. Now, I know a while back they signed Allen to a new deal, but Allen's mentality is not Flurry's mentality. Allen hasn't backed up a Stanley Cup yeah. championship. Allen doesn't have a Hall of Fame resume. No. Right. 
Allen, my sense is that Allen would be more amenable to a trade where he would play a fair amount for a Stanley Cup contending team, but he wouldn't be the starter. I think Marc-Andre Fleury, who's been a part of Stanley Cup champions in in years past, he he still he thinks of himself as number one goaltender. Whether he is, in fact, one or not, that's how he thinks of himself. Jake Allen has been a starter, has played a lot. He's also been a backup and not played very much. So I think his mentality is different. And, you know, the, the Markstrom possibility, I think, is out of reach for, for kind of the same reason that Fleury is not likely to show up here and accept a backup role. That's a Markstrom's a starting goaltender. And he's not going to go somewhere. And, and first of all, somebody's not going to pay him the amount of money that he gets paid now to be a backup. So, listen, Georgiev is this year notwithstanding. Georgiev is a top half of the league starting goal. If tender. he's healthy and hot, and he's fine, he's good. He's he fine. is look. He has better. He has won a, a cup with Darcy Kemper in right, that. Right. And it, it, last year we both agreed that since Patrick Waugh, Georgiev looked like the best goaltender, all things considered. Age, yeah. a willingness to work. I mean, here's a guy who sit behind Shesterka and never played. Yep. He was thirsting to play. Athleticism. And play for a team that might have better Stanley Cup prospects than the Avalanche do. And believe it or not, this week, there's still people in the wake of this four-game Avalanche losing streak coming out of the break, 0-3-1, and who think the Avalanche have the best chance to win the Stanley Cup. Edmonton's cooled off. Recently, they've lost a couple after the six-game winning streak. They're giving up a ton of goals again. Their goaltending will always be in question until it's not. The Avalanche starting goaltender in and of himself is not in question. It's the idea that he has to play 65-70. And you, you were gone last week when Jared Bednar said something that was so uncharacteristic of him. And I called him out on it for one reason mainly, and that's because I'm of a different generation, an older <laughs> generation than Jared Bednar. Jared Bednar was talking about, oh, not that long ago, goaltenders play 70, 75 games. No problem. As a way of rationalizing the fact that that's the pace that Georgiev is on right now. And I said, back in the original six days, they didn't even play 75 right. games much less have a goaltender starting in 75 games. They didn't even play 75. I happen to grow up as a New York Ranger fan when they weren't always playing as many games as they play today. And Eddie Jockerman, in most years, was toast in the playoffs because he had to play, and he wanted to play, but he had to play 65 to 70 games during the season until they found a competent backup goaltender. And then, all of a sudden, Jockman didn't have to play as many games, so he stopped making first and second all-star teams, but he was much better playoff goaltender, which, to me, is the preferable scenario to being a first or second team all-star, mainly because you play in so many games. 
and you're good in those games, but by the playoffs, you're toast. That's what I thought Georgiev was last year. And I won't say toast. He just wasn't stealing games, and they needed one theft yeah. of a game in that seven-game series with Seattle, and, and, the and they didn't get it. That they, they have already seen what happens when Georgiev is fatigued. You don't want to gamble on that again. The Avs have got to fix that. You brought it up over at Superbook. The Avs still the fourth most likely team to right. win the Stanley Cup. They'll drop the puck in just about 15 minutes. We'll turn our attention to the hardwood where college basketball, the, uh, the well, the, the you say calculus. Not only calculus, but the, uh, the road for CU gets harder. The road for CSU may be a little bit smoother. We'll break down the latest next on My Life Sports. We've had a million, million nights just like this. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Of course, we have a uh, college basketball expert here on the program, which is always nice because, uh, quite frankly, growing up here in Colorado, great place to grow up in sports. Not really steeped in the uh, the college basketball lore nationwide, for example. Uh, this state, when you're talking about when you're coming from back east, had an opportunity to see some of the, uh, the great ones. But the latest bracketology from ESPN comes out. And, and that's, uh, while it's not, you know, a gospel, it obviously is, is a pretty good projection of how things shake Lenardi's down. reputation is probably unsurpassed. I would think so. I don't think there's anybody. When it comes to these kinds of projections, I mean, he isn't 100% right. No. At this point, no one would be. Well, and no one would be it, right it, when you're talking about left something that's designed by a committee anyway. I mean, it's not even possible. But you look at the, uh, the, the two teams in still in play. I think that uh, we've talked about DU before. They're in play. They have to win. The they summit. have to win the tournament. They have to win the tournament. Period. And it, that would be true if they finish first or yep. last. End of story. Uh, the bigger conferences, you don't necessarily have to win the tournament. There are a lot of the, the conferences that are going to send a lot of teams. Of course, Mountain West appears to be one of them. CSU yes. has a game tonight. They play San Diego State in a huge game, nationally huge televised game, game at yep. CBS right. Sports Network. That'll uh, tip off at seven p.m. locally here, although it is out in San Diego. Uh, a big game for the Rams, who bounced up a little bit in the AP voting. If the um, also yeah, receiving did. votes actually yeah. counted, they'd basically be at 27. Right. So, seem to have righted the ship a little bit. I would think if they can get a win tonight and build on that, and keep in mind that uh, out in Vegas, the Aztecs are favored by five and a half. So, the right. expectation the loss is, will not hurt. CSU. Yeah, it's 18 and six. Uh, for San Diego State, 19-5 for the Rams, so obviously extremely close. Both 7-4 and four in conference. This is your textbook. I, I guess, you know, you're going to get some of those points because you're the home team. It's just that simple. But what it, you're right. The loss won't hurt you, but a win would probably help propel you up a little bit further. Well, um, a win would give you a chance when you play Utah State at home to tie for first place. CSU is right now, based on tiebreakers, one game behind Utah State, which is 8-3 and three in the conference. CSU, Boise State, New Mexico, San Diego State, all 7-4. and four. But that's how they're ranked, according to tiebreakers, at this point. Uh, CSU had a win 
earlier this year, not that long ago, in fact, right. just a couple of weeks ago, I think, here over San Diego State, huge game. San Diego State made the national championship game last year. Uh, yes, San they Diego did. State's good. And San Diego State is one of six Mountain West teams projected by Joe Lenardi, the bracketologist at ESPN.com, to make the tournament. In fact, the highest seed projected in the Mountain West would be San Diego State at number five. Who, by Followed the way, by not- Utah State at seven, CSU at seven, Boise State 10, New Mexico 11, Nevada 11. Six bids going to Mountain West teams, according to Lenardi, as things stand right now. And, and San Diego State is 11 and 0 at home. So loss doesn't again, the loss doesn't hurt. So you have to look at this. If your CSU is an opportunity to make a leap forward because it's a statement win on the road against a team that hasn't lost a home game against a team that is also in that same mix as you are, that depending on the poll, you're looking at in that 25 to 30 range. And it would be a a tremendous opportunity. So uh, you have to be able to come into this. And, and find a way to get a good start because I think that's the problem. We've seen the Rams get in trouble. It's when they fall behind early. It's not a team that appears to necessarily be built to come back. And that's been kind of the bugaboo. They're better. Most teams are better with the lead. I get that. Uh, but in, in the Rams' case, despite the talent, good starts usually lead to wins for them. And bad starts, especially on the road, tend to lead for losses. And so when they focus on this game tonight, I, I think the first – Five to seven minutes of this game are really, really important. I think you're right. Um, The way ESPN has broken it down, they're the traditional one-bid conferences, and there'll be 22 bids coming out of those Summit League, one of those, right. right. There are 18 lots. There are 42 bubble teams battling for 28 spots. And if you add up those numbers, you get 68. 28 plus 18 plus 22. The teams that should be in include CSU. Should be in. Yeah. Okay? There are 18 of those. CSU is one of the 18. Work to do to get in 24 teams, including the University of Colorado which it seems to us would need at least two road wins and probably at least two wins in the conference tournament to qualify. Why is it so much harder for CU than for CSU when the records are similar? CSU has a better record. CSU beats CU head-to-head. There's that. Well, there's six teams who are projected to make the tournament out of the Mountain West. There are three Pac-12 teams scheduled to make it. And you know that Arizona's in because Arizona's a number one seed right now. And that's where perception just sort of becomes reality. Uh, The the Mountain West is loaded. not. And so the similar records mean more. But get this. There is not a single other team apart from Arizona in the Pac-12 that would be a betting favorite in the NCAA tournament even if Washington State makes it likely to be a nine seed, playing an eight. Utah is the literal last team projected in right now. Their team 68. Their team 68. As an 11 seed, last team in. They'd have to play a preliminary game to get in the field of 64. Utah is good. The Buffs have, yeah. And the Buffs and get them again. 
the Buffs lost to them in Utah, which isn't disqualifying, but it goes without saying Colorado's got to stay clean at home. They lost to Arizona, lost an opportunity on Saturday night. Arizona was just too good. Utah is not too good. No team that Colorado plays in the three remaining home games is too good. But these next two games on the road, Thursday against UCLA, Saturday against USC, they're both ESPN. Not ESPN News, two, U, have to win. ESPN. That's have it. to win at USC. And you better give a UCLA, UCLA game. is pretty damn important. You better give them a game. Because that's a, a lot Colorado's of Colorado's got a better team than UCLA. A lot of the voters this late in the year, this might be the view. They, they may end up seeing CU's final record and where they stand in the in the conference. But these two games might be what they see. And that sometimes ends up being the difference maker when you're a team on the ball. And you've got to see more from Cody Williams. You period. Do. You do. Rams get it going tonight against San Diego State. That'll be at 7. We'll touch base with the Buffs again before they play on Thursday. But we go back to the Denver Nuggets. Little injury issues kind of cropping up. What do they want to do to manage that? We'll break it down with Mile High Sports' Ryan Blackburn next. 